0: Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I am Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Remember that tonight is the night for our next virtual book club event. This summer, we have been reading Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison as a community and talking about all of the themes in that book that are so relevant today. Tonight, I'm going to talk with Valerie Prince, who's an associate professor of African-American Studies at Wayne State University. She wrote the paper titled, Keep on Moving, Don't Stop, Invisible Man, and the monograph, Burning Down the House home in African-American literature. We're going to talk about art and music at the time of Ellison's writing of Invisible Man, as well as the role of women in the book. It should be a really great conversation. We have been having wonderful conversations with authors and experts, and of course with you, the listeners, all summer about Invisible Man and the themes that we are seeing kind of repeat themselves right now in American culture. So if you are... Part of that conversation here on the air or on Facebook, you should join this virtual book club event tonight to find out how you just need to register at WDET.org slash events. And remember, if you haven't already, you really should join the WDET book club book club group on Facebook, where there is this really great conversation going on each day about Invisible Man and about systemic racism and a lot of other themes. Up first today, this week marks the 100th anniversary of white women securing the right to vote in this country. And while it's a rightfully celebrated milestone, the reality is that the right to vote was not granted to black women or any black Americans until 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. But now, in this moment, when the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage falls in the same week As the Democratic National Convention, where we're seeing Senator Kamala Harris accept the vice presidential nomination, it is worth pausing to take stock of the role of women in this country in 2020, both politically and socially. That is where we want to start the conversation today, looking at this moment in time for women. Emma Green is a staff writer with The Atlantic, and she recently took a look at what Senator Kamala Harris's nomination signals in terms of the modern feminist movement and how it fits into the context of what it means to be a woman in America in 2020. Emma Green, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: So before we get to politics, I want to start with this moment for women in terms of the pandemic. You write that, quote, women have generally taken on more childcare and household duties than their male partners have since the onset of the pandemic. And more women than men have also lost their jobs in the recession caused by nationwide shutdowns. What can you tell us about the toll these additional obstacles are creating for so many women?
1: You know, it's just the way that the pandemic fell out, that the industries that are most affected and the parts of life that Uh, women happen to take an outsized role in are just really under pressure. We know from research and surveys that have been done that women are taking on significantly more domestic labor. For example, a study from the Boston Consulting Group suggested that women spend 15 hours more on domestic labor each week than men. Women also perceive in surveys that they are spending wildly more time on homeschooling duties, supporting their children as they do distance digital learning. And we know that women who often serve in roles in the hospitality industry, in restaurants, have been laid off in higher numbers than men. And they also serve in the caring roles that are on the front ra- front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. This includes people in hospitals working as nurses, women working as elder care assistants in nursing homes. So all of this just comes to a, a picture where women are under so much pressure during this pandemic, even more so than in other times in American history.
0: Hmm. And so it's kind of an interesting bookend, I suppose, to what we saw in early 2017 when you had this incredible march in Washington. 470,000 people showed up uh, to support uh, women and uh, to, to protest against the, the things that they thought that the Trump administration would do and stand for. You saw three to five million people participate in marches all across the country, women's marches. Uh, that was about empowerment. That was about uh, moving the, the, the cause of uh, feminism forward. Four years later, at the end of this first term, you have this pandemic that kind of peels back and exposes just how much inequality still exists.
1: You know, we never could have predicted in that January of 2017 that the four years to follow would bring such a hard fall for women Mm. that we would have this global pandemic, which would exacerbate all of the issues that women were already protesting um, all those years ago. But what we have seen over the past four years is women Really finding their political voices, feeling that they are marginalized and forgotten in politics, that they don't like the policies of the Trump administration generally and overall. And we've seen activism from the 2017 special special election that happened in Alabama Mm -hmm. to the 2018 midterm elections to this season leading up to the 2020 presidential election. What I hear again and again from my sources, as I'm reporting out in the field, is that women are taking this anger that they have, this pressure that they feel, and transforming that into political action.
0: Hmm. Um, what are you hearing and seeing from women in your own life at this time in terms of the pandemic and in terms of uh, this milestone Anniversary—a hundred years—that since the the passage of the amendment that uh, that gave women the right to vote.
1: You know, I've come to have a line I use when I do phone interviews, which is that we're all doing the COVID shuffle. Everyone from me to the people on the other end of the line are trying to balance work and domestic labor and cooking and passing children around. Um, This is just an incredibly pivotal moment in American history, and yet on a personal level, I I know so many families who are struggling to make it all work out. To be able to balance all of their different responsibilities, even as we look ahead to this really important moment of uh, national activism and and a national political election. Mm. Um, But what we've seen reflected in our political leaders, and this is Republicans and Democrats, but especially uh, with the Democratic National Convention last night, we see all of this rhetoric that reflects that, that says this is at once the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote officially. And it's also a historic time of women feeling underwater with childcare, homeschool, working, trying to figure out how to balance their lives. So it's a a sort of bittersweet moment, I think, as far as anniversaries go, because we have this, this striking accomplishment of 100 years of women's suffrage. But it's also at a time of real pressure and hardship for american women
0: Hmm. i'm talking with emma green a staff writer at the atlantic about the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage uh, the 100th anniversary of the 19th amendment which uh, gave women the right to vote white women at least the right to vote in this country Uh, if you want to give us a call let us know what you what you want to hear uh, and see in terms of uh, feminism in, in 2020, are you feeling like you have new and additional burdens and responsibilities in your family and within your home? Also, tell us what you think of Senator Kamala Harris, whether that's an inspiring moment uh, for you as a woman. Is it a sign of Progress of incredible progress, uh, even uh, if, if you think about where we were just four or eight or 12 years ago in terms of women in politics. Uh, also, call and tell us what you think of the incredible strides we saw women make in the political theater in 2018, all of the changes right here in the state of Michigan. Uh, that put women into positions of power. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Emma, I want to talk specifically about Kamala Harris and her nomination uh, to be part of the Democratic uh, presidential ticket. Uh, th- it is a huge moment. It is not as huge a moment in my estimation as having had Hillary Clinton at the top of the ticket four years ago. But it is it is in its own right, significant, uh, partially because uh, she's a woman of color, and that's a first as well. Uh, but also because of um, uh, because of the kind of politician I think, Uh, that Harris is and the profile that she strikes uh, in this race. You have written a fair amount about uh, Kamala Harris. Tell us what you make of this of this pick.
1: Well, there's no doubt that this is a historic moment for the United States. Um, When Kamala Harris gave her acceptance speech last night at the Democratic National Convention, she told a story about feminism and women's suffrage. And the names she checked as her foremothers in this moment of ascendancy are names that we often don't hear spoken very Mm. much uh, in American history. This is women like Mary McLeod Bethune, who founded a black women's college, Mm -hmm. was a philanthropist, was a diplomat. Um, This is women like Shirley Chisholm, who was the first black woman elected to the United States Congress. She also ran for president. Constance Baker Motley is a woman who Kamala Harris, I'm sure, sees herself in. She was the first black woman appointed to the federal judiciary, the first black woman to argue before the Supreme Court. And why I bring up those names is that Kamala Harris is self-consciously, fashioning her candidacy as not only an achievement for women, but the women who have often been left out of feminist stories and feminist history, who were not able to be present at the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 where white women declared that they should have equal political rights. Kamala Harris is expanding the vision of what it means to be a woman on the ticket because she's not just a woman. She's a black woman. She is an Indian American. She is a woman who went to a historically black university. And I think those images, that milestone really matters for a segment of the American population who just don't see that many people who look like them in office or on these high-profile tickets.
0: Hmm. And and at the same time, if we think back to before the pandemic, when the Democratic primary contest was pretty competitive, uh, there, there was a lot of talk about sexism in the race and the sexism that some of the other candidates felt like they were they were victims of during the, the during the campaign and uh, in the run-up to the nomination. Harris was 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 one of those people. Uh, it, it's really interesting to me that kind of you you have this this flip side of that uh, sort of revealing itself now, where she is going to be the vice president of the United States if Joe Biden wins the election uh, in November. That's
1: right. There have been certainly feminists. And I, in fact, profiled someone uh, last week who had this view, people who feel that in a kind of painful way. This is a historic moment, but it's also a consolation prize. Hmm. We saw during the Democratic primary that there were not just one, not just two, but several women candidates who wanted to be at the top of the ticket Mm -hmm. and made really fierce bids to do so. And Harris, of course, was one of those women. And so when I have interviewed women, for example, I talked to a former high-level Hillary Clinton staffer who now runs her own organization trying to get women to run for state and local office. And she cried during our interview talking about how painful it was to remember Hillary Clinton losing and also remember how hopeful she had been during the primary season that a woman would be the Democratic Party's pick. And ultimately, the party ended up going with Joe Biden, who has a large base of support, but he's also a white man. Hmm. So there's a there's a bittersweet element to this moment. It's certainly historic. It's a huge achievement for Kamala Harris. But it also, I think, is painful for people who really think it's time for there to be a women a woman in the White House.
0: And so, if you kind of try to sum all of that up, are we at a moment where feminist progress is still under under duress? Is is still really threatened, uh, or are we at a point where where we can sort of count more victories uh, than than defeats uh, i mean it, it obviously is a pretty complicated uh, a pretty complicated issue to, to sort through but but if you had to sort of pick which side is sort of got the upper hand i guess at this point is it is it progress or is it failure
1: You know, I think we are at a point in American history where women are not only breaking barriers and setting records, but they're also demonstrating their political power in ways that are unprecedented. We saw this really starkly in 2018 with the kind of mobilization and activism that women were leading up across the country, the kind of turnout that we saw from Black women voters, suburban moms who did letter writing campaigns. All of this added up to a historic surge in women's representation in government. Um, In the 116th Congress, we saw uh, records set for the first two Muslim women elected, uh, Republican governors elected who were women, female governors uh, storming the governor's mansions. All of this is progress because it means that there are more women in office, Republican and Democrat, all races. And, and that's what really matters is sort of slowly pushing the tide. But I do think it's important to have a historical framework here because in 1984, when Geraldine Ferraro became the first woman to Mm -hmm. ever be nominated for vice president, joined the Democratic ticket with Walter Wandale, um, that was also a moment when feminists felt like they were ascendant. They felt like women were finally going to take what was theirs. I went back and watched the video on C-SPAN recently, and there are all of these women waving these banners that say, a woman is the ticket. And and so <laughs> I think it's important to celebrate what's happening now if you're a person who cares about women of all kinds, of all ideologies making progress in politics. But it's also important not to sort of forget that these moments have happened before. And in fact, women have fallen behind before um, and women have not reached that point of equality that so many women thought would happen decades ago.
0: Mm. Uh, uh... You know, I also wonder if you can talk a little about the divide, the political divide on the question of women and progress. You have one party, the Democrats, who have uh, in the last two cycles now had a woman on their ticket. Uh, The Republicans, of course, never have. uh, And uh, you continue to see uh, lots of, uh, of pushback uh, in Republican ranks against uh, feminist ide- ideology. Um, both sides are competing, of course, for women voters in November who will be very decisive in terms of what, uh, what the outcome is. Who's, who's playing that better? Who is playing that smarter uh, in terms of trying to appeal to women in 2020?
1: Well, we know just on the basic numbers that the Republican Party has a harder time with women voters, and there are just fewer Republican women in elected office. You know, Sarah Palin did run as the vice presidential candidate on John McCain's ticket in 2008, and we have seen historic wins by Republican women. For example, Marsha Blackburn in 2018 became the first woman elected as a senator from Tennessee. So those milestones have been reached on the Republican side. But all in all, the bench of Republican women leaders is much thinner and, and shallower than it is on the Democratic side. And I think we also see that reflected in what voters think about Democrats and what voters think going into the 2020 election. We've seen for a number of weeks now polling and polling averages that suggest that Donald Trump is trailing Joe Biden by double digits with women. Mm. That's pretty remarkable. Mm. In 2016, of course, women did favor Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump as well. But the gap is growing much wider, Mm. so much so that Republican political operatives are sounding the alarm to say, this is something we really have to worry about. We can't lose all women uh, when we come to the election. So I do think that women voters are going to be pivotal when it comes to determining who wins the presidency in 2020 and pivotal when it comes to activism across the states in deciding who will win Senate races, who will win congressional races, whether there will be uh, state legislatures and chambers that are flipped. All of that, I think, is going to be reflective of the political power that women have been building, especially since Trump was elected.
0: Okay. Emma Green, staff writer for The Atlantic. was great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the ebbs and flows of black representation in media since the 1950s with NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. We're going to continue our WDET book club discussions about Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. we